Well, if we begin this morning with uh, the question, uh, what do you need? And we just passed a microphone around the room. What we would discover is that there's a wide range of answers uh, to that question, what any of us might need. We would also discover that uh, we're not very good at human nature of distinguishing between wants and needs, uh, that uh, not everything we want is necessarily something that we need. Parents know this challenge firsthand. Uh, our, children, our children don't merely uh, desire or wish or hope for a thing. They need it, uh, and everything is a need, and we're not good parents uh, if we don't deliver those needs, so we have to teach them the difference between wants and needs. This is also a challenge in the spiritual life because we naturally tend to think uh, of things in a very narrow uh, and shallow perspective uh, about now. And God's work uh, in our world is concerned with the deepest needs in our lives, not, not just superficial or surface-level wants. God is working uh, in the temporal now, but His focus is on the eternal so in God's economy, as in fact it is in our worldly economy, not every desire, want, or wish is actually a need. And needs, although there may be many, uh, are not necessarily equal. Now, this is a helpful way to frame our mind uh, as we think about returning to the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to chapter 2, because this idea is at play in the passage that we're considering today. But it's also a part uh, of the tension that Mark is framing between a culture and a people who desire and want and wish for something from Messiah, and Jesus, who is dead set on doing the Father's will, doing what the Father has sent him here to do, which he has shown us at least three times so far in Mark's gospel, is to preach the good news that calls for repentance and faith. This is humanity's greatest need. This is my greatest need. This is your greatest need. It's the greatest need of everyone that we read about in this familiar story today. It is the overriding and overwhelming purpose behind why Jesus Christ clothed himself with flesh and came into our world. As Mark will clarify in the key verse of his gospel, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, as Mark's narrative opens up in chapter 1, which we've covered in the last several weeks, uh, we see Jesus proclaiming the gospel and then substantiating uh, the message that he has come to preach by displaying his authority. We have said several times the Greek word exousia. It means innate power. Nothing has been assigned to him. He didn't get a degree that qualified him. He has this power from within himself. And he's been vindicating uh, his call uh, by healing and by casting out demons. And because of that, his popularity and fame as a wonder worker is on the rise. Yet, as we considered over the past two weeks, just a one 24-hour period of ministry in the life of Jesus in the city of Capernaum, we're left with just two conclusions. Number one, people are not coming to Jesus in faith, but they're coming for their wants, their desires, their wishes. And second, that Jesus is determined that his focus remain fixed on the Father's will uh, of meeting humanity's deepest needs, uh, a more pervasive need uh, that exists in every one of us. Jesus will be Redeemer. That is the, the message uh, of the Gospel of Mark. He's not merely a miracle worker. He will be Redeemer. 
In this way, the gospel is counterintuitive because as we think about needs uh, and we present our needs to God, we can sometimes, as Christ followers, uh, come to feel as though we're entitled because of God's great love for us and because he's adopted us and he's, uh, he's sent his son to save us, that we can be entitled to the things that we ask for. But the gospel is counterintuitive because it confronts us with our sense of entitlement only to remind us that there's something deeper, that as long as we live in this life, uh, a deeper need that we will continue to draw upon uh, in the work of Jesus Christ, uh, and that is the need for forgiveness. Now, this controversy surrounding Christ is beginning to grow uh, because uh, Christ's claims about himself are pressing home. Uh, In chapter 1, his popularity is soaring, and in chapter 2, we're going to see one of five uh, conflicts that he has with religious leaders. And what's inevitably going to intensify uh, in his claims uh, as, as a climax in Jerusalem begins here in our story in Mark chapter 1, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In this story, uh, while secrecy is a motif in uh, the gospel of Mark, Jesus is constantly telling people, don't talk about this, don't tell people what I did. Uh, it, there's a secrecy to what he's doing. In this particular passage, uh, he's left with no other choice but to, ch- to confront the system of external religion and to challenge its dead orthodoxy. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So Jesus has been away for some time. Mark is a master of time gaps. Uh, it's probably been a, a period of six months since Jesus left Capernaum. Remember, he had to go to desolate places because word was out about him. And so he began to travel to other cities. So it's been some time has lapsed. And Mark says Jesus has now returned after some days. And this kind of eases the tension from chapter 1, verse 45, where Jesus had to stay out in desolate places. So he's able to come back to Capernaum. Uh, And then word gets out, it's reported that he was at home. Now, we happen to know that the home that he's at is Simon Peter's home in Capernaum. It's it's Jesus' uh, ministry base. Uh, And the words here are uh, produce a a kind of excitement in the city of Capernaum that Jesus has returned uh, to Simon Peter's home. So people start to gather. A large crowd presses to the door. The room is filled up inside. uh, And Jesus is doing what? His primary mission, he is preaching the word. Preaching the Logos. He's, we don't know exactly the content, but we, but we know that he had come to preach good news. So he's probably expounding from the Old Testament passages that, that forecast or foreshadow his coming. He's preaching to them. Verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could, could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So uh, they, these four friends, you're f- infinitely familiar with this story, four friends terribly concerned about their paralyzed friend. They believe in their hearts that this man, Jesus, uh, is who he says he is, and he can do something about it. So they, be, they go and they get their friend, and they're bringing him to Jesus, only to arrive at the house, at Simon Peter's house, and there's no way to get the leper, or, I'm sorry, the paralytic inside. So in that day, uh, uh, roofs were flat, and there was usually an outside staircase, and so they carried their friend up on the staircase, uh, and then they began to tear the roof apart. Now, uh, a roof in those days was a series of logs with other uh, smaller branches laid across, and then eventually a pitch uh, and a mud, and then in, in some cases, or actually Luke says, uh, that there were tiles laid on top of that. And so these friends figure out exactly where Jesus is in the room. They carry their paralytic friend up, and they begin to tear the roof apart so that they can lower their friend directly in front of Jesus. 
Now, what's interesting is it says the reason why they couldn't get their friend who's in need to Jesus is because of the crowd. Crowds play an important role in Mark. They come to Jesus consistently, and they receive his compassion. But Mark is never going to show us that the crowds turn in repentance and faith to Jesus. They're coming for wants, wishes, and desires. They're not coming for a redeemer. And eventually, when the healing stop, or when Jesus stops breaking uh, bread and feeding the, the masses, they'll all turn away from him. And as we see so clearly in this passage, crowds are actually become an obstacle to getting to Jesus. These friends, though, are, are tenacious. They're going to figure out a way uh, to get it done. Now, there's interesting in the Greek, there's a, an alliterative contrast uh, in, in two words in this passage. The one, one is the word house. It's the Greek word oikos. Uh, and that's set against a, a second word, akalos, which is the word crowd. So as, as enthusiasm uh, has begun to build, crowds are amassing, but crowds are actually a deterrent to people who want to get to the Savior. They don't want to see uh, just a magic show. They want, a, they want a redeemer, and crowds are a deterrent to that. And so what's going to happen across uh, the course of Jesus' ministry is he's going to start teaching the masses in parables that are not readily understood. Uh, he's going to teach in, in the aklos, uh, the crowds in parables, but then he's going to retreat to the oikos where he will explain the parables to his disciples, to those who are following him as the redeemer of the world. And what this tells us is that enthusiasm about Jesus or even proximity to Jesus is not the same thing as having faith in Jesus. Okay, you can be a fan and, and not know Jesus as your savior. In order to, to know Jesus as Savior, in order to follow uh, what he's done for you on the cross, uh, you have to be a, a disciple. That means you have to have faith in and not just part of the crowd. Uh, so uh, Jesus goes, or the men drop uh, their paralytic friend through the roof, and then verse 5 says, uh, and when Jesus saw their faith. So these friends, they, they dared to, to do to the difficult, to do the dangerous, to do the controversial. Uh, this wasn't their home. There was a chance they could be sued, but, but, but they so believed that Jesus could help their friend that they were willing to run that risk for themselves. And Jesus, seeing their faith. Now, the, these four men stand in contrast to all the people we saw previously in Capernaum. They were coming to Jesus with a, a wish, a want, a desire in mind. And as soon as they had that, they were content. These men needed something more. These men saw Jesus as who he said he was. Mark uses these four unnamed friends uh, as an example of what faith looks like, what it looks like to have faith and what it looks like to do faith. It, it reminds us of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, now one of the takeaways, I want to give you three this morning. One of the takeaways for us comes from these four friends. And I would word it this way, that genuine faith is rooted in truth that leads to action. Genuine faith is rooted in truth that leads to action. You see, the crowds come to watch Jesus work wonders, but they don't take action to follow him. That's what the disciples do. And if we have genuine faith, then it necessarily moves us to action. See, there's a great picture of faith here. First, faith is rooted, uh, faith is rooted in truth. It's rooted in uh, God's declaration of who he is. It's rooted in the truths of the gospel. Faith is, is not some kind of uh, religious leap in the dark. It has substance. We, we believe what Jesus has said to us, and therefore we have faith. It's founded upon truth. 
It's not just a a theological premise. It's not just a concept or something we give mental assent to. And then second, faith is always action. It's always a way of living. It's always a lifestyle. It's always an approach to life. Faith will not only change the way you think, it will change the way you act. And we see that in these four guys because they really did believe that Jesus was who he said he was and that if they could just get their friend to him, that Jesus could help their friend. And so they were willing to do something radical just to get their friend in front of Jesus. And this points us to something incredibly important. Faith, if it's not really faith, will get shut down by obstacles. When you run into difficulty, if you don't have genuine faith, if you don't know that you know that he is who he said he is, and that he's committed to you as he has said he's committed to you, never to leave you or forsake you, then faith can, faith can be fleeting. And when difficulty comes, we will find ourselves running from faith. What happens when your faith gets challenged? What happens when you run up against an obstacle? What happens when the going gets tough in your marriage? You have faith that God can do the miracle of marriage that he has to do in every other couple's life? Or do you just walk away? Oh, that our gospel belief would be formative. That we would be able to say, hey, I I do what I do at work because I believe in God, because I'm a Christ follower. I, I love my spouse the way I do because I believe in God. I'm a Christ follower. And even when things are difficult, because I believe in God and because I'm a Christ follower, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I have faith that he will work even through the midst of this. I, I parent my children the way I do because I believe in God and because I'm a Christ follower. And we could just go on and on. I go to church because I believe in God and because I'm a Christ follower. I'm actively living my faith because I really believe God, that he rewards those who seek him. Do you believe that? Have you lived that? It's true. Genuine faith is rooted in truth, and it leads to action. But this is not the radical thing in this account. Based on our 24 hours of previous ministry in Capernaum that we follow Jesus on, everybody knows what's about to happen. Roof gets torn away. There's probably a spectacle, a lot of gasp and oohs and ahs, and then a paralyzed man is lowered in front of Jesus. Everyone knows, based on 24 hours in Capernaum, what's about to happen. What is it? He's going to heal him, right? No, that's not what Jesus does. This is the exceptional thing. Jesus says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now imagine that. That's not like me saying, uh, Eric, I forgive you. Uh, that's, that's not like you know, Jeff saying, Larry, I forgive you. Okay, there's, there's something more to this. And when Jesus says these words, there would have been shock and awe filling this house. Everyone who heard Jesus say it would have been taken aback. Jesus pronounced this man's sins forgiven. The priest, the high priest couldn't even do that. The most that the high priest could do was confirm that a person's sins must have been forgiven by God. But Jesus looks at this man, having seen the faith of his four friends, and declares, son, your sins are forgiven. The word son is a a term that a superior uses who acts with authority and benevolence on behalf of another person. And the verb tense here, forgiven, means at this present moment. Jesus isn't saying, hey, just keep your eyes focused on the Lord. One of these days, he's going to forgive you. Jesus says, in the moment, your sins are forgiven. Now, in the Old Testament, sin and sickness were considered to be interrelated. 
So in this culture, this, this particular paralytic was probably looked down upon because he's it's probably to blame for why he's on that bed. There's probably sin that explains uh, his sickness, his paralytic state. Uh, but even if uh, it's, there's no direct correlation, Jesus recognizes that every one of us live in a world marked by sin, and things happen to us simply as a result of being uh, living in a world that is broken by human sinfulness. So he sees something deeper in the man. He sees that his greatest need was to receive forgiveness. And so Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And this is my second takeaway for us, that every person's greatest need is for forgiveness of sin. Every person's greatest need is for forgiveness of sin. That starts for us when we come to know Christ as our Savior, but it does not end. We don't just graduate on to bigger and better things. Jesus says that to do the will of the Father is to repent and to believe. And what God is doing over the course of a lifetime during the process of sanctification is delivering us consistently from our sinfulness. Every person's greatest need is for the forgiveness of sin. You don't graduate from that one. It was true the moment you came to know Christ. It will be true of you until you receive or until you breathe your last. See, the most distinctive uh, benefit of Christianity is not sacrificial love. It's not a high standard of morality. It's not a sense of purpose or satisfaction in life. All those uh, are virtues that, that are byproducts uh, of, of biblical Christianity. But they do not address the, the greatest gift to humanity. Uh, the gospel offers surpassing benefit that trans, transcends all others. And that is this idea that God would look at you and I, undeserving sinners, worthy of being separated from him for all of eternity, and choose to make a way that we might be forgiven, that we might be offered forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It's the greatest message the world has ever heard. It is so because it speaks to the deepest need that exists in every person, which is why, church, we don't move on beyond the cross. The cross is the hope of the world. This is why we, we proclaim the gospel, because it's good news to every person who hears it. Some people uh, want these days, even people who profess a relationship with God, get fi- uh, hooked up on or fixed on, on the idea of God's love, that in the end, because God loves, he's, he's going to accept everybody. That's not loving. It's not loving to not tell the truth. The truth is, God has an issue with us. His wrath has been leveled against human sinfulness, yet he's provided a way whereby his wrath could justly be satisfied in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. God does love us. How does he love us? Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The greatest message, the thing that sets Christianity apart from all world religions, is that it speaks to the deepest need that exists in every man, woman, or child born into this world. We need forgiveness. We need a redeemer. So Paul warns in Romans chapter 2, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The loving thing is for us to tell the truth to the watching world. And the the truth is that we all are born with an identity crisis. 
Yes, we were created in the image of God, but because of sinfulness, the image of God in us is defaced, not erased, but defaced. And that only by means of the cross of Jesus Christ may we be forgiven and renewed and restored to our image-bearing capacity as sons and daughters of God. That's the loving thing to tell the world. That we have incurred as a, as a race, we've incurred a moral indebtedness to God, and there's, it's going to be paid for. God's justice demands a payment one of two ways. Either through the cross of Jesus Christ, or we pay it for ourselves for an eternity separated from him. That is the good news. The good news is God has offered to us in his son Jesus Christ forgiveness. And this is so important for our personal lives. It's important because uh, as we uh, live our lives and we seek to minister to other people, it's important for us to recognize that my greatest problem isn't out there. My greatest problem isn't what's wrong with my life. My greatest problem is inside of me. No one has done more to undermine my life than I have by my own sinfulness. And so to stay close to the cross, which is why Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and walk with me, is so that we will never stray too far from the provision of forgiveness in our lives because sin will kill us. Sin is a recurring problem in our lives, yet God is working to deliver us from it because of what Christ has done. So Jesus' words to the paralytic create controversy. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus' words are, uh, uh, are, are tantamount to claiming that he has the right, the authority, to speak as though he were God. Now, immediately as Jesus says that, the focus shifts from the paralytic on the bed to every religious leader in the room, because Jesus is being watched now. He's going to be watched from here to Jerusalem. They're going to be there, planted among the crowd, acting as though uh, they want to hear him speak they want to see him do great things, but they're there just to catch him doing something wrong, and Jesus lofts him a softball right here. No one can forgive sin but God. No one. Paul, uh, uh, sorry, David tells us in Psalm 51 that sin, all sin, ultimately is against God. I mean, your sin may affect other people, but primarily it's, it's, it's an offense against God. So the only person who can rightly forgive that sin is God himself, and yet Jesus doesn't withdraw. He affirms, son, your sins are forgiven. Then verse 6 and 7. <clears throat> now, since some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus is going to respond to them, but I want you to note that, first of all, that they were questioning in their hearts. Nobody had the audacity to say anything out loud. They just thought to themselves, you know what? Theologically, no one can say what he just said but God himself. This is blasphemy, which means an infringement upon divine prerogative. No man can speak for God, which is why when we talk about praying for healing, that we pray against the backdrop of God's will because we do not speak for him. It's divine prerogative, and yet Jesus steps into that knowing that a blasphemy is a capital offense. This is actually what he's going to be crucified for in Mark chapter 14. The very same thing, that he uh, professes to speak for God more than that, that he is God. Now, the, the scribes in the room, they're right. Their theology is dead on. No one can do this but God. No one can rightly forgive sin but God. It's just that they drew the wrong conclusion. They determined that he was a blasphemer instead of determining that he is actually God. Verse 8, 
Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? So Jesus asked a rhetorical question, and what he focuses on, the force of proof. We all know theologically that it's harder to forgive sin than it is to heal the body. We've got lots of doctors and nurses in town that can help mend things. It's far greater to forgive sin, but it's harder to prove that that actually happened. So Jesus is focusing on a force of proof. It's a a fortiori argument. It means that if, if I can prove the thing that's harder to do by providing immediate proof, then it must validate the other thing. So if I can prove to you that I can actually heal the body, then it proves that what I said was true. His sins were forgiven. So by bringing their questioning out into the open, uh, Jesus ensures that his claims to be Christ and Messiah, or deity, God, uh, are on the public record. For the one time, the thing that's actually going to lead to his crucifixion, he wants them to recognize that this is what he's saying. He's not a good prophet, as the Muslims would say. He's not just a moral teacher. He was professing, and if you don't believe it, read the Gospel of John. He was professing all along to be God incarnate. And so when he says, your sins are forgiven, he means it. Verse 10, after calling them out, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. I halfway suspect that the scribes were just kind of hoping that nothing would be said, that they just kind of, everything would, everybody would leave, and then they'd be able to like accuse him later. But Jesus says, hey, so that you know I have the power on earth to forgive sins, I say to the paralytic, take up your bed and walk. And immediately it took effect. Immediately the paralyzed man got up, rolled up his mat, and though he couldn't get in the room, all of a sudden everybody parts in quietness as he exits the room. Because Jesus has the power not just to heal, but to forgive sins. Jesus here for the first time calls himself the Son of Man. This title is used 80 times in the Gospels. It's used 14 times in the book of Mark. And the title has messianic overtones, but without uh, the nationalistic uh, baggage of Son of David or Messiah. So Jesus wisely refers to himself as the Son of Man because his time has not yet come. He still has to make a journey to Jerusalem before it's time for him to lay his life down. Uh, the, the idea of son of man, the messianic overtones, come from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, uh, and then again in 13 and 14, we see the ancient of days, which is the father, uh, interacting with the son of man. And what we see in, in verses 13 through 14 is that the son of man is opposed by forces of evil. He's then vindicated uh, by the ancient of days. He's rescued. He's proven right. And then he's given dominion. Allowed to, uh, He's enabled to dispense God's divine judgment, and also to dispense God's divine forgiveness. You see, the issue at stake here now, as we move beyond the paralytic, and we're dealing with the the religious and political leaders of the day, the issue is Jesus' claim not only to have innate authority to be able to do things, but to have unique exousia, to have God's power. And Jesus demonstrates his authority as God in three ways. First, He knew their hearts. They didn't have to say a thing. He knew what was in their heart. He knows what's in yours. 
He knows what's in mine. And while that might seem frightful, the truth is he came that he might provide forgiveness. And knowing our hearts, he wants to set us free. Knowing their hearts, he wants to lead them to truth, but they're too blind to see it. Second, Jesus didn't argue with their theological premise. Only God can forgive. I just did it. What do you make of that? And then third, he then validates his ability to forgive by demonstrating that he has divine power. He tells the man to take up his bed and walk, and he does. Jesus has a point to make, and he's meant, he meant for it to be noticed. Who can forgive sin? The answer is Jesus. Jesus does what only God can do. And there's no other way that you will find a way to the Father but by Jesus. The outcome of Jesus' actions are immediate. Verse 12 says, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Immediately, the crowd's reaction was amazement, astonishment. They glorified God. They'd never seen anything like this before. And yet the crowd's response will still prove to be superficial. They don't see Jesus for who he is. And the question before us from the text is, do we? Are we disciples of Jesus? Do, do we believe he is who he says he is? Do, do we believe that we are desperate for the forgiveness that comes flowing from Calvary's mount? Or are we just fans of the idea? Faith is founded in truth, but it leads to action. It affects how we live. Jesus purposefully waited to heal the paralytic until after he had forgiven him. Because the greatest need of humanity is for forgiveness. Regardless of what your life may look like, we don't come to Jesus because of what he's going to do for us. We don't come to Jesus on the hope that life is going to be a bed of roses and that he's always going to take care of my problems. This is why it's important to hold uh, the idea of the belief in healing uh, against the doctrine of suffering. We come to Jesus because he's rescued us from an eternity separated from God. Because he's gone to the cross and endured what we could not endure and paid the price for our sins so that we might be forgiven and that we might be adopted into God's family. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, listen to this, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So may we all humbly say with the gospel, yes, there are things that I must suffer in this broken world. There are obstacles. There are difficulties. There are pains that are the result of the brokenness of this sin-stained world in which we live. And I will fall and stumble and struggle to overcome my sins. I will confess that I humbly need Christ. And that is the good news for us, friends, because even in our sins, 
we have Jesus. We have what a watching world desperately needs to know that they can be forgiven, that there's hope of an eternity with him. That's the gospel. And when we aren't living that out, when our faith doesn't lead us to action, then two things happen. You quit being a consumer of amazing grace. It's just something you talk about from your past. It's something on your resume, but it's not something you live. Listen, friends, if Jesus is who he says he is in your life, if you, if you know Jesus Christ to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you contemplate regularly the price that he paid for your sin, then you do not stray from grace. You know how desperately you need it every single day. Second, we quit being enthusiastic about it for ourselves and for others. So many Christ followers are content to think about heaven as just a hope that's coming at the end of my life. And in the meantime, I'm just going to live the way I want. In the meantime, I'm, I'm just going to do what I want. In many ways, we're just like the crowd. We want Jesus for what he can do for us, but we're not really going to lay it on the line, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And that might suggest that we have a rather shallow commitment, that maybe what we call faith is just, fa <clears throat> is just fandom. This leads to my third observation, I close. May the genuineness of our faith and the absolute wonder that he would forgive me, may that lead us, fuel us to eagerly follow Jesus in finding others. Jesus alone is God. He proves it in this passage. It's clear to those of us who believe, but one day he will prove it to all, Philippians chapter 2, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is who he says he is, that he did what he said he was going to do. And for some of us, that will be an eternal joy to rejoice in. For others, it will be sad, hard news, eternal, sad. In the meantime, if we find ourselves in the passage I think God is calling us to be his disciples, to be like the four unnamed men who do everything they can to carry their friend to Jesus, to do whatever it takes to, to befriend and to love and to share our testimony and to lead people, even if it's just an invite, so that God might use our life the way the four friends were used to bring their friend to Jesus. This is what we've been left here for. This is the mission of the church. This is what disciples are called to live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for the provision of forgiveness. Perhaps it's been a while since we thought about it. It shouldn't, but perhaps it has been. Maybe we just tend to take for granted that Forgiveness which came at such a high price, at the expense of heaven's richest treasure, that we just think it's always going to be there. Might we live close enough to the cross that we never get over the price that you paid to save a wretch like me? Because of your great, infinite love for me, you desired to see me become the person you created me to be, and I recognize that 
it's an incomplete journey. That I'm not who I'm going to be, but by your grace and because of your forgiveness, I can say I'm not who I once was. And I rejoice in that and I praise you for it. I want to I stay close to you, Lord Jesus. And then I pray, Father, that you would use us as a church, as individual Christ followers, to be a, a winsome witness of what it means to follow Jesus, to stay close to the cross, to, to be able to uh, share your love with other people, to be a conduit of grace, to speak the truth, and to point people to Jesus, who alone can save a life. May you use us to that end. We thank you, Father, that though it's more complicated, that it's more difficult to forgive sin than it is for you to mend a broken body, that you were committed to see us washed and cleansed and made new. My prayer, Father, today is that if there's anyone here who does not know you, who knows about you, who's part of the crowd, who's maybe a fan, but has never surrendered their life for the forgiveness of their sins in repentance and faith, I pray that you would draw them to know you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me?